Hello, Cachimbonas. I am very excited today to have Central American journalist Daniel Alvarenga on today to talk about Salvador's recent decision to make Bitcoin an option for legal tender in the country, which is the first time that any country has done this. But before getting more into it, Daniel, I just wanted to thank you for coming on to the podcast and ask how you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm doing okay. Um, I just got back from El Salvador and, you know, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. There's a lot to make sense of. So I feel like, um, you know, we're in very confusing times as Salvadorans, Salvadorans in diaspora. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, but, you know, a little concerned about, you know, our state of being right now. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate that you just got back from a Salvador yesterday and today agreed to be on the podcast. I'm sure it is an adjustment to be in El Salvador to being back in the U.S. and immediately talking about Salvadoran politics. No problem. <laughs> so uh, you wrote the article for El Faro, and it was a really clear breakdown of the history of U.S. intervention in the Salvadoran economy and why Bitcoin just seems like a very risky move uh, in terms of making it legal tender. So first, I wanted you to go through the history of USAID and how this connects to the Bitcoin controversy in the Salvador today. Yes. So, you know, USAID is a program that started in the 1960s um, in the U.S. under the Kennedy administration. And it was sort of to consolidate a lot of um, interventionist efforts that the United States was doing at the time. So, mm-hmm. so it, it kind of became an umbrella organization that sort of carries out the U.S.'s soft power in the sense of USAID is all about international development in foreign countries, particularly vulnerable global South countries. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's, I say it's more benevolent um, because it's, it's sort of contrast to the usual way we think of U.S. intervention, which is military weapons, troops on the ground. Is. This is a much more insidious intervention. And mm-hmm. USAID in El Salvador has an interesting history because USAID in El Salvador has basically shaped Salvadoran society um, since the war. As military intervention was happening in El Salvador, so was this sort of like financial intervention happening in El Salvador. So USAID established this place, um, this organization called FUSADES, the Salvadoran Foundation for the Economic and Social Development. And it, it was basically, um, you know, kind of favored um, elite mm-hmm. Salvadorans worked in it, um, people who were in the ARENA government at the time, which was the death squad government for people who don't know. And it had sort of these pillars among them was um, security. Um, and we all know mm-hmm. that like, you know, security in El Salvador hasn't really been fixed since the war. It's, it, it's, it's just got different, you know, things. And then, you know, one of them was economic prosperity or economic development. And, you know, the Salvadoran economy became shaped by this organization. And, you know, it's, it's sort of ushered in, um, it sort of kind of worked in collaboration with um, some of the governments in El Salvador to usher in like neoliberal reforms Mm -hmm. of the government, you know, the privatization of, of industries like telecommunications, but as well as, you know, and the adoption of the U.S. dollar, right? exactly the adoption of the U.S. dollar. 
So, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of been this organization that has sort of kind of ushered El Salvador into this direction of being this like hyper capitalist, super privatized economy and an economy that is increasingly developed, uh, increasingly um, um, dependent on U.S. Um, mm-hmm. on U.S. models, economic models on U.S. trade. Um, and the biggest of that is the U.S. dollar. Like, you know, El Salvador let go of its Federal Reserve Bank where, where it housed Colon is, which is the old money. And now, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank in the U.S. and Washington, D.C. Um, is where the money in El Salvador comes from. And they have, it has a lot of weight. Um, you know, it's, it's very neo-colony-esque, um, the fact that we don't have our own money. <laughs> right. And it kind of, it makes us even more dependent on the U.S. economy and how it's doing like the U.S. economy has global influence, but to literally tie our economic fate to the status of the U.S. dollar is very much intertwining as I in the U.S. Yes, and we're incredibly intertwined because, as you may know, there's two million Salvadorans in the U.S. That's mm-hmm. that's equivalent to one third of the current population. Um, or at least a fourth. It's it's a big chunk of the. Uh, it's you know El Salvador is like a country of like somewhere between six eight million. I don't have my numbers on me right now, but mm-hmm. we also have the flow of remittances in U.S. dollars. And back in two thousand nine, I went to the Salvadoran Parliament or the Congress, La Asamblea as they call it, and I asked one of the Arenero politicians, Arena right wing death squad party politicians, and we asked her. Um, why the dollar? Why the dollar? And it was just kind of like, oh, because, you know, remittances, you know, it just makes it easier for people, um, you know, kind of because she kind of insinuated that, you know, we didn't have calculators and like it was hard to add and multiply and all these things. It's it's sort of been something that has mm. sort of benefited a certain class of Salvadorans as well. The U.S. dollar had a devastating impact on every Salvadoran. It sort of caused prices to go up. You know, there's certain denominations of colones that were like so tiny that were like fractions of a cent that like all got like kind of pushed up. So the cost of living in El Salvador, you will notice it is higher than countries like Mexico or some of its neighboring countries mm-hmm. just by virtue of having the U.S. dollar. And so, you know, some people argue that it has some pros and mm-hmm. I, you know, some people argue that it has a whole lot of cons, depending on where you are in the political spectrum. But it's definitely, um, it's definitely signals sort of our lack of sovereignty, our lack of um, really being able yeah. to steer our economy in the people's interests. Right, and I think that this Bitcoin controversy is kind of the latest example of that because this is not something that seems like it would benefit the poorest of El Salvador, although Bukele has been trying to market it as that. Yes. Yes. You know, that's something I, I wanted to, I definitely wanted to get into because like, I'm not an economist, I'm a journalist. So I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning mm-hmm. about this as, you know, at the rate the people in El Salvador are learning about this as well. Right. Right. Same. So it's sort of been something I've had to wrap my head around to talk about. But, you know, while I was down there, you know, I got the opportunity to speak to people. And, you know, what, you know, one of the concerns from everyday Salvadorans is just that it is going to be mandatory. It is proposed to be mandatory mm-hmm. in September, meaning what that means is that, like, if if you are selling something and someone asks for a Bitcoin transaction, you have to carry out a Bitcoin transaction by law. Mm. And the way that 
actually was talking to my mother about this and the way she she was concerned about is just let's say you own property in El Salvador um, and you want to sell it and the buyer the mm -hmm. buyer demands Bitcoin you have to give it in Bitcoin right. you have to you have to receive money in Bitcoin and then because Bitcoin is so volatile it just takes Elon Musk to like tweet something negative right. about it for it to tank so then you know, right. let's say you you sell your house, you get money in Bitcoin, and then that Bitcoin money is not worth the same amount of money it was like a day ago because of some internet mm -hmm. thing. And so then you lost your you lost out on a whole bunch of money. And El Salvador is a country where it's very rural, like you know, access to education is is limited and and it's very unequal. So you could potentially have a scenario where a lot of people are maybe swindled out of land or properties or cars i don't i don't know um you know all of mm -hmm. these are hypothetical right now but they're among the concerns people are having yeah i think that makes sense because i mean i have no idea really what is involved in a bitcoin transaction other than the fact that it's a very energy intensive process and you need a smartphone and internet to carry it out mm -hmm. and you know, I like I do not know what how a verify how to verify what a Bitcoin is. So I definitely think that that is a huge transparency issue, particularly because this is new to like ninety nine percent of Salvadorans. Yes, and the technology part is like a bit of concern because there's a, a statistic that only like one in ten Salvadorans have regular internet access. And if you've been to El Salvador, you'll notice that most people get their their, their cell phone data services, their um, just cell phone services generally packaged through prepaid services. Right. Mm -hmm. So there isn't like this like fluid access to internet like there are in countries like the U.S., which also you know have inequality issues with internet access. But in El Salvador, that's way more pronounced. Um, not. Everyone has a cell phone, though many do, and especially when you go in the cities. So it creates this thing of like, okay, well, um, if there's going to be Bitcoin everywhere, are you going to give everyone Wi-Fi? Right. Like, or are people going to be paying to just access their money online? Which is kind of what probably people already mm -hmm. who do online banking already do, but that is not accessible to the majority of Salvadorans who pretty much pay cash. And to give some context to people who haven't been to El Salvador, right. it's like, a primarily cash-based society mm -hmm. and i'll give a few examples like when you take uber in el salvador you have to basically accept cash or like pay in cash and there's even a button that pops up on on uber in el salvador that i don't see in the us is is a cash option because if you pay by credit card you will get left like uber drivers have left me i took i don't take uber anymore but when it first came out in El Salvador, I tried it out quite a few times. And I was, I didn't like it because I'd get stranded if I didn't have cash. At that point, I'm just gonna get a taxi mm. um, if I have cash. So so I started seeing that like, if I didn't have cash and exact cash, I was gonna be left behind in El Salvador. And that just, that just mm -hmm. proves that like, you know, people also need that like cash now. Like they're not, they don't have the time to log on. They don't have the time to log on mm -hmm. and transfer their money or go to the ATM. Like they need that cash now to feed their families after they're done driving Uber. And the second thing is, is like you notice the use of cash more. Like, for example, another example is the fact that like mm -hmm. in El Salvador, right, right, right. everyone uses dollar coins. 
you never see dollar coins like you saw the the Sacagawea coin back in the states. You know the golden one dollar coins. You saw them for a moment in the two thousands, in the early two thousands perhaps, and then they like kind of fell out of favor. And just generally in the U.S., cash has fallen out of favor. And everyone's tapping. They're using their cell phones. Mm-hmm. They're using their cards. And so, so we don't really see dollar coins. They're like I, I always say that all the dollar yeah. coins were sent to the U.S. I mean to the El Salvador. We're sent to El Salvador. And like, but but you know, I talk to people about it, and people prefer mm-hmm. people prefer the dollar coin because you know they're exchanging cash so much that the dollars get a lot more wear and tear than they do here. <laughs> so the dollar yeah. coins is, is is a way for your dollar to like you know, last longer, essentially. So, so it, it's an incredibly cash-based mm-hmm. society that just like to transition it to digital, like, and this is not Bitcoin, not Bitcoin, just right. digital dollars and online banking and Venmo and Zelle and all those things is going to, is it would be a heavy lift in of itself. Yeah. And also you mentioned the article that the World Bank has refused to help us roll out Bitcoin as legal tender. And so I was wondering if that also adds to anxieties about execution, because as you say, like, had this been just solely on the shoulders of the Salvadoran government, it would be a heavy task. And on top of that, these institutions that it would normally seek out for help, like the World Bank, has refused to help it roll out Bitcoin. So I wanted to ask you, like, first, what what that what you make of that? What does that mean? What Why do they refuse to do that? And then also... Is that another reason why you foresee problems with execution of Bitcoin as legal tender? Yeah, you know, not to be a fan, I'm not a fan of, of the World Bank. Um, right. I feel like there's some dependency on it for like countries in the global south. But, you know, at the end of the day, like they're an organization that distributes billions of dollars to developing nations. Right. Um, we have a debt to them. And they, it's not that they care about the Salvadoran people when they are making this decision to not help with the rollout is that like they don't have faith in the government of El Salvador probably paying back their debt. <laughs> and so mm. so I think they, you know, El Salvador is, is is a country that historically struggles with corruption. Where does the money go? We have presidents who are in exile or who have stolen millions and millions of dollars. So we don't have the best track record for money. And then so right. so I so what I sort of what I see with that is the the World Bank is not trying to legitimize it, um, and and you know the Naibo Gel administration, you know, yeah, kind of was banking on not to use a pun, but <laughs> was banking on the legitimacy of the IMF, of not the IMF, the World Bank to give it legitimacy, and the IMF, as far as I remember, was kind of on the fence. It was like, uh, no comment, <laughs> <laughs> and so. So I think, you know, these big financial institutions are showing apprehension. It, it's not a good sign for the administration. It's not a good sign for for the Salvadoran economy that sort of de- de- depends on these on these places and, you know, has a dependency on USAID. But a lot of it is, you know, hypotheticals. You know, we don't know what the real reality of it is going to be until it happens. And that sort of uncertainty and that is where El Salvador lives right now. And there's... Um, there's a lot that hasn't sort of been discussed. You know, it's sort of just been pushed through Congress because Nibugela controls all of his, his party controls all of the yeah. branches of government. So it's just like, we haven't had a national dialogue about it. It's been just like, 
this is the new law, right. follow it. By September. By September, yeah. And he's, you know, he's creating an incentive, Chivo Wallet, which is going to, you know, which essentially is is going to give Salvadorians, <laughs> yeah, no, Chivo Wallet is going to, it's basically for those who don't speak Salvadorian, Caliche, it, Chivo means cool. So it's like a cool yeah. wallet. And, you know, his whole thing is like, I'm a cool person. <laughs> I'm so over him. I know he's like, I'm so cool. Yeah, so he's got to <laughs> emphasize. How- Stop, you're like 38. <laughs> Right. Like, why is your baseball cap backwards? Yes, exactly. Um, he's like that, like um, Buscemi meme. Like, how do you do, kids? And he has like the skateboard. Um, <laughs> so it's just like he. It's weird because it's just like he's giving people thirty dollars, but that thirty dollars for one is coming from the taxpayer money. So like, I don't think people really decided like, hey, I want to give mm. everyone thirty dollars though. Do I do 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 Salvadoran people deserve reparations from the government? Absolutely. Is three dollars enough? No. But the problem with those three dollars mm-hmm. is that you're not allowed to take them out. You're only allowed to use them for Bitcoin transactions. Oh wow. That has caused some controversy because it's just like I don't like I don't even know if that's possible. But <laughs> um, I don't right. even know if that's possible. A lot of people are skeptical about. Can he really not let us take out the Bitcoin money? But yeah, he's pulling out all kinds of weird moves to adopt it. Um, you know, and there hasn't been this like kind of general understanding of what it means for people. And so that, so you have a lot of skepticism, you have a lot of people, you know, uncertain about the future. And, and if anything, this, this, this Bitcoin thing is probably his first unpopular policy in the sense of like, he's an extremely popular president and he's also raising the minimum wage recently. And a lot of people feel that that's sort of like mm. a, a way for him to come back into people's good graces the financial right. sort of yeah. sector of of South, of the of the hearts and minds of Salvadorans after this like whole Bitcoin thing just confused everybody. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's a good move, but there there's still I think just so many transparency concerns, which are coming off of the backs of him kind of officially taking over the three branches of government, ousting the Supreme Court justices, so that he had that branch in his favor as well and as you say for these reasons like there's no dialogue there's hasn't been a national dialogue there wasn't even really a dialogue amongst the legislators and it's like a very rushed execution yeah yeah and the legislators they 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 didn't all understand the law they were passing themselves right. it was sort of it was much like you know his nuevas ideas yes men kind of and yes women pushing this like stuff through and then a lot of them said oh you know um, we're not going to require you by law to like use it and then like but if you read the and law then they did <laughs> but if you read the law it says the opposite so it's just like what's the yeah. truth and um a lot of salvadorans caught their politicians you know in that lie or in that like lack of awareness of their own law so that like that just raises a red flag that like um oh okay so like Y'all are doing everything that Naibukele wants. You, you guys aren't even discussing it. You guys are just passing everything through. And that has a lot of a lot of implications for democracy at large. But um, another thing that sort of points to lack of transparency is the fact that there was an organization, you know, they, they shut, like, Naibukele, like, was a champion of the CCS, which, um, which was, in English, the commissioner of the International the, or no, it was the International Commission Agency against no, the International Commission against impunity in El Salvador. It was supposed to be an anti-corruption sort of body. Um, mm-hmm. There was a similar one in Guatemala. Um, 
and they haven't been like incredibly successful. I won't lie, but he, yeah, well, it's a big task. Yeah, and he he championed he championed this in the early days of his presidency, especially because you know his whole thing was like I'm not like the other guys. Yeah, no más ideas. Yeah, los mismos de siempre, right? He's not like los mismos de siempre, and like he was going to sort of create this body called the CCS to like take down the corruption that Arena and FMLN had done, according to him. But then he's completely abandoned the CCC, the, the CCS, completely abandoned his own anti-corruption policy. And he's also done laws like, like Le Alavi, which, you know, was basically you can't investigate any sort of pandemic related corruption because it was an emergency. Oh, no. There's been all of these signs that like, He's not for transparency in these other realms of Salvadoran governance. So what makes you think he's going to be transparent about its, about like the financials of the country, um, of the debt in the country, of the national reserves that the country has, you know, um, like, is he like a lot of people are concerned is like, is he going to use Bitcoin to gamble away our um, social security, which isn't like a lot to begin with. Mm. Right. That's I know that must be super overwhelming for folks to think about. And apart from the kind of financial uncertainty about it, there are also environmental concerns with Bitcoin, right? Because it's super it's like a super energy intensive technology. And Bukele has said something about how he plans to use like thermal energies from our volcanoes and how this is really innovative. But what are the concerns? that folks who care about the environment have. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to learn this recently because I'll be honest, I used to live in the Bay Area and I used to just avoid Bitcoin bros and cryptocurrency nerds. Which yeah, same. I know. I'm so mad I have to learn about it now. I'm like, oh. So now I'm just kind of like, okay, now like my country, yeah, exactly. Now my country survival or like my parents' country survival, my homeland survival is like based around it now. <sighs> and that's just like, so it's, it, it so what I've gathered is that Bitcoin's a digital currency, duh, and it needs servers to function. You need servers to keep mm-hmm. that money flowing and functioning properly. And how are you going to power these servers in a country that is used to power outages, that rations water, um, where natural right. resources have been exploited, um, and mm-hmm. you know, take those na- they take those resources from the people of El Salvador who needed to like live every day, and use it for currency. Um, and so he mentioned something about mining volcanoes for energy, and what people say that mm-hmm. meant was that you know using geothermal energy for it. And it's just like what like we already ration we already <laughs> ration our you already see power outages in poor neighborhoods. You already see water outages in poor neighborhoods. El Salvador is incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. volatile. It's incredibly volatile to natural disasters, hurricanes, volcanoes, earthquakes. So like, so like yeah. if these servers crash, like will the economy crash as well? But also we're also a country that has banned a mining, mm. the first in the world to do so because Canadian mining companies were gonna put, po- were poisoning our rivers, killing our land defenders. And just we don't have a lot of resources as a, as one of the smallest countries in Latin America, so we have to protect our resources more than other countries, perhaps. And so, how are you going to propose mining volcanic energy and whatever that means um, when we're a country that has like sort of mm-hmm. become the poster child for anti-mining? So, are we going to go 
are we gonna are we gonna take are we gonna, so we're gonna take 20 years back in terms of environmental protections which are weak to begin with as much as there are wins for this currency like right you don't you don't need a server to like you know keep the dollar coin floating around in people's hands like so there's all kinds of issues with it environmentally and just the access to the technology it, it just it doesn't seem realistic it seems like something that like if it'll right. be implemented it'll probably be used by the top sector of salvadoran society and foreigners mm-hmm. right which is kind of the salvadoran economy has always benefited that specific sector of people absolutely yeah the transnational elite that run the country and with creation of places like Bitcoin Beach, I just feel like it's going to create zones of access and zones of inequality where like there are these resort type towns like Bitcoin Beach where the rich come and, and can exchange their Bitcoin. And then there's, you know, still going to be most of rural Salvador that doesn't have Internet access and that continues to have power and wa- water outages. It's just it's like, as you say, it's like when a, it's a country is still developing kind of like the basic everyday needs infrastructure still like you it's just unwise to think that you can also innovate with geothermal volcanic energy and then not use it for like basic needs but using it for this really outlandish thing that sounds innovative and cool and snazzy but isn't really yeah, yeah, you know, and and one thing, I, uh, it's it also plays sort of on our heartstrings as Salvadorans, in terms of our sovereignty. Like, you know, when I was born, it was, and when my parents were born, it was the colones, yeah, uh, money that had Christopher Columbus mm-hmm. on its on its face. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, just the symbolism of that yeah, is already yeah. egregious. Um, you know, very colonial. And then we went from Christopher Columbus on our money to. George Washington, and you know, after we fought this like long decolonial war right, right. against U.S. interests, you know, ultimately the U.S. interests won, and now the U.S. dollar is in everyone's pockets. And so, so I think there was, um, despite the fact that colones represented this colonial money, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people still have nostalgia over when El Salvador still had its own economy. Yeah, when El Salvador still had its own money. And now it's just like, you know, just you, you, you know, you, you open your billfold and it's just like these strange slave owners from like a couple countries away that are how you used, how are, are, are how you used to get through the day and, and survive. And so, so I think he's also playing on the heartstrings of like people miss having that old money. People miss having sort of that control or like that, like sort of perception of control. And so I think Bitcoin's just the start. A lot of people, um, you know, Bitcoin's a lot more, it's been around 10 years. There, there's probably a bit more oversight, a bit more awareness of it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think it is a stepping stone to another type of cryptocurrency. I don't know, Chivo coins, whatever he's going to call it, Bugella bucks, I don't know. So, you know, which, you know, will add another layer of um, lack of transparency. <sighs> And so, so I think he's playing on the heartstrings of like, let's take the economy back. His his whole little mantra was sort of developed in the Trump age. He very much, you know, functions like Donald Trump in his social media and how he came to power and was even cozy with the administration. So he's very much, you know, about like, let's make El Salvador great again. Right. And part of that is just like, remember when we had our own money? 
and he, this is a form of like you know him he's he's using that to he's using those feelings mm-hmm. to manipulate folks mm-hmm. into into feeling like this is a part of them taking the reins of their own economy right i know i when you were talking about how everyone loves the dollar coins i was like that must be nostalgia for the colonies for the you know like more coin based currency that what that existed in years past and it's very manipulative to be to be using that that desire for sovereignty that kind of has never really been fully fulfilled and to use it as a framing for his adoption of bitcoin and I definitely foresee the possibility of him adopting another kind of cryptocurrency. And that I think speaks to his moves that suggests that he is kind of like increasingly corrupt and also like okay with, you know, there even being some kind of like public facing information about it you know you said that he has abandoned the board that he initially created the anti-corruption board and I think he's getting more and more brazen in his actions especially because he really does control his followers via social media they they don't it, it is it is very much mirroring the Trump phenomenon because they're kind of in this it's, it's a little bit like the fake news situation where they don't read anything else about him except for what he says via his social media platforms. And one of the things that people talk about with cryptocurrency is how it really helps with money laundering because it doesn't require people to be banked for transactions to occur. And so also wondered if you're worried about how the adoption of Bitcoin can potentially also increase money laundering in a settlement, which is already a huge issue because of organized crime. Yes. So the money laundering thing is, I will admit, I'm not an expert on economics, but from what I gather as a Salvadoran journalist who has been sort of reading about it, you know, there's been some politicians in Mexico and Panama that have like lauded the Bitcoin news, like we should do that too. And it's just like, we have examples of these already in the region, you know, Mexico, as well as El Salvador has a huge problem with money laundering by illicit groups where politicians are involved. Honduras is a narco government next door. Mm-hmm. It already has these like economic zones called Zede where they, where they use cryptocurrency. They have laws. They, there's one that has laws, Delaware laws. And if you're from DC area, oh, wow. like I am, you know that you go to Delaware because there's no taxes. There are all these where businesses are incorporated. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. so you're starting, you know, you Panama, the Panama papers, Panama is like, known to be a hub for this for the u.s and you know you have these throughout the caribbean as well so so the potential for el salvador to do that is is that it it wouldn't be unique in the region it wouldn't be unique in the region right there are other examples of how this could happen and you add to the fact that yeah we do have a lot of a lot of you know i hate to use this term but criminal groups um and mm-hmm. and you know i think organized crime yeah. is a good way to put it because they are very organized and it's like quasi-governmental at this point so yeah it's quasi-governmental and for folks who don't know the context of el salvador is that like every politician in power has had to make truces with mm-hmm. gangs to stay in power has had, yeah. 
to stay in power, to um, manipulate the the daily sort of murder rate because El Salvador is, is has become defined by its murder mm-hmm. rate. You know, it's kind of what hurts tourism a lot. It's kind of what gives us this most dangerous country as National Geographic's once called us. Mm. It's part of the whole MS-13 mystique, right. right? So it's just at this point, yeah, like to be in politics in El Salvador is to, at, is, is to in a way, negotiate with organized crime for better or for worse. And um, Nayib Bukele mm-hmm. has always denied that he's doing this, but there have been lots of examples, particularly in the Faro, that have documented that his administration is negotiating with gangs. So you add Bitcoin to right. the mix. <laughs> and it's it was just, beneficial for them. For yeah. for gangs, they yeah they don't. It's perfect. You don't need banks. It's anonymous. Yeah, yeah. And there's already like you know there's already a lot of talk about cryptocurrency being used in this way outside of El Salvador. Yeah. And you know it hasn't really this stuff doesn't really reach the everyday Salvadoran. You know right. you know the the stuff that reaches the everyday Salvadoran is his propaganda. Right. His. So can you break down a little bit his cult of personality? We've been hinting at it kind of throughout this whole interview, but I want to get into it because I've noticed that his his support in the diaspora is very strong and his support from people in El Salvador is very strong. My mom is a little bit, you know, she's kind of a little brainwashed into it. And there's people who, like when I when I expressed disappointment at Bukele adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, there was people in my comments who were saying like this was anti-imperialist and I, I wasn't seeing the vision <laughs> and, you know, defending him pretty hardcore. So I, I just get kind of confused about how we got to this point. I mean, confused and then not because I've lived through the Trump years, but yeah. can you just like how are so many people convinced that he's an anti-imperialist and that this Bitcoin move in particular can help us get toward that in some way? Yeah. So the cult of personality Bukele is something that's like been something I've tried to wrap my head around several times. And it is just um, incredibly frustrating because like you said, you know, we have, we have family members. I think every Salvadoran who has a connection to the homeland and has like, is part of a Salvadoran community will have a member or several if not most, mm-hmm. who are pro-Bukele. And, you know, he uses social media, just like Trump, he uses propaganda videos. Like, I'll tell you this, like, my father just watches Nayib Bukele, you know, YouTube programs religiously almost. And become, wow. it's, it's kind of shaped his perception of the country, and he's not alone. You know, for a lot mm-hmm. of people who are displaced, for a lot of people who are displaced, for a lot of people who are displaced, you know, they don't really have that connection with the homeland. Our elders aren't on Twitter, so they're not reading like um, the journalism happening there. Um, they're relying mm-hmm. on Facebook and YouTube, which we know is rife with misinformation. Right. We know that they influence the Trump campaign and radicalizing folks towards right wing extremism. But El Salvador has something unique too. We had a civil war. We had a civil war, and in that civil war emerged mm-hmm. basically two two parties: Arena, the Death Squad party that ruled the country for the first twenty years of the post-war, and essentially shaped the economy to what it is today. Um, and then we had the FMLN in the last ten years that were an ex-guerrilla group, and because they've strayed very far from that. <laughs> 
like Nidia Diaz was she she tweeted who's a co-founder of the original Afro-Mandarina group with tweet she's a politician now and she was tweeting like happy 4th of July to the U.S. amazing 200 years of independence from England and I was like it's crazy yeah it's Defamon has its its radical you know branches it has its sellouts and the the fact of the matter is that however way we look at their past 10 years before Nayib Bukele and their administration is that people are disillusioned. People were, people were disillusioned with the true yeah. traditional parties. Yeah. Um, so we created sort of this yeah. vacuum um, where people were disillusioned with the, with the two dominant parties. And, you know, Nayib Bukele kind of filled that power vacuum, that sort of, you know, that's that's how he got the slogan "Los mismos de siempre." He campaigned as like you know we need to get we need to get out of the post-war. We need to leave the war behind. And part of in his mm-hmm. you know in his sense, part of leaving the war behind was leaving these two parties that had their sort of genesis in it. And so he sort of right, played right, on right. our war trauma and you know El Salvador, El Salvador wanting sort of like a third option, which is now the only option. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people didn't probably start off as a hardcore stands of Nayib Bukele. Um, they were just kind of like either abstain from voting or they were just kinda like, let me let's get let's throw a bone to this new guy because we've already mm-hmm. tried the others. So, you know, and his cult yeah. of personality is very much on the Internet. He's probably the first one of the first Latin American presidents to sort of really mm-hmm. fully use the Internet bring himself to power he was kind of an influencer mm-hmm. he had these little moments when he was um mayor of san salvador um that he was a cool he, he was a cool governor or not a governor mayor and you know he, he he did things like pokemon go you know he gentrified downtown san salvador he he beautified wait what about pokemon go he had like pokemon go events in san salvador <laughs> What? And like, you know, he, this is so wild. Okay. Yeah, he you know he didn't dress like um, the traditional Salvadoran president. You know, he wore yeah. jeans and like red socks or like colorful socks. <laughs> but one thing people forget about Nayib Bukele is that he came up through the FMLN. Really? Yes, he was oh. part of he was part of the media camp. He he did the media campaign for Mauricio Funes, which was the first mm. FMLN president to come to power in two thousand nine. So. And his father, his father, Armando Bukele, who I, re- I still regard as a great man despite his spawn, is, uh, is Armando Bukele was a big supporter of the revolution, a big supporter of Shafi Kandal, and a big supporter of the FMLN. And so Nayib Bukele sort of came, came to power as mayor of Nuevo Cuscatlan, which he beautified and used, he, gent- he, be- he beautified and used it to boost his profile. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he was also in the FMLN w- as mayor of San Salvador. And for those that don't know Salvadoran politics, um, being the mayor of San Salvador is like a hop and a skip to becoming president. Yeah, as he proved. It's almost, yeah, it's almost like a you know trial run or a lot of people, you know, at the very least, if they don't become presidents, if you're mayor of San Salvador, you run for it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he came to power the FMLN. He was, he was eventually kicked out of the FMLN for sexism. The women of the FMLN... <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yes, dude. That's what it is. He's just a mediocre man. Yes. Like it's literally what it is. It's like he had Pokemon Go events. What? Yeah. It was just kind of like that's not what El Salvador needs, but that's cute. No. It's like what? Like, um, like, he's like a he's like a teenage boy. Yeah. You know, with like the interests of a teenage that's boy. That's what my mom calls him. He calls him a niño caprichoso. 
Oh my God. You know, God. because like, and you know, he, he, his little, I don't even know how to translate it, but you know, like he has to fulfill his little whim. Like a mischievous yeah. child. Like a little, you have like, to fulfill his yeah. whims or his caprichos, you know, and, and, you know, he's taking the whole country for a ride, but then, you know, but then he did abandon the FMLN once they kicked him out for sexism. And you can look up that history. He threw, mm-hmm. he supposedly spoke really ill of a woman and like, threw an <laughs> apple at her. And, oh my and I want to reiterate, it was the women of the FMLN who pushed yeah. him out, not the men. And you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll let people stew with that and what that implies. But later on, he did abandon the FMLN and he, and he became into power, not with Nuevas Ideas, but with Ghana. Because Nuevas Ideas wasn't a cohesive enough party by the time he needed to run that he sort of used Ghana. Um, and for those of that don't know, Ghana is just an offshoot of ARENA. ARENA, which was the death squad mm-hmm. party of the 1980s and 90s. Um, it's just an uh, extremely right wing offshoot. So he went from an, uh, from like uh, a leftist, you know, organization that has its roots in like Marxism to an extremely right wing yeah. death squad adjacent um, party. And, you know, at that point it was like, he's um, he, he'll just go with anyone who will get him into power. And that's a red flag, but now he has his own his own sort of right wing party in Nueva Ideas, where he's brought in people from all the other parties, and um, you know you have politicians in there who have been ex Areneros, ex ex Ghana, ex FMLN, mm-hmm. um, and he sort of consolidated power by like dipping his toes in every party and seeing you know taking taking with him the rhetoric and the the styles of them so like a lot of his anti-imperialism stuff was probably is like co-opted things per, perhaps from like the fmln because sometimes he does sort of do these sort of discursos or or, or like speeches that kind of sound like yeah you know we're taking el salvador back from mm-hmm. from this american influence that controls our economy but at the same time like the only reason he, he he's anti-america in instances is when the united states puts some sort of block to his power whether it is you know they withhold the USAID money or they express concerns of his governance so he is a flip-flopper he doesn't really stand for any one mm-hmm. cause or party it's it's about you know Naibu Kele and all of his family members that he's put into office and their economic interests and we need to look at every single thing he does through that lens, mm. especially Bitcoin. Yeah, I I really appreciate that because it's just important to point out his flip floppiness because that that to me signals that we don't we don't even really know what his true values are because he's a he's an opportunist and strategic more than anything else and. It's kind of like the classic politician, but we we should want so much more than that for ourselves and for us. Yes. And you just said that the classic politician. So his whole thing is that, like, you know, we're not los right. mismos de siempre. Uh, we're not the same as the old. And these are mm-hmm. new ideas, mm-hmm. nuevas ideas. But it's just like none of these ideas are new. None of these practices are new. A lot of these are the same people from the old parties that yeah. like, now. So it's just like none of that is really wholly true. They're just empty slogans used for his propaganda. But, you know, they sound nice and they make people feel like change is happening. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is a huge part of his hold on the diaspora as well as this. People just want to feel hopeful about something. Mm -hmm. So, Daniel, I've had you for a little bit, almost an hour, and I don't want to keep you for too long. Those are all the questions I wanted to ask. Were there was there anything that we didn't get to cover that you wanted to touch on? No, I, I think that was very thorough. I think I think I think people who are on the fence about Nayib Bukele, who are concerned of family members who are very are too into him, to start doing your homework. You know, don't just follow me. Follow your podcast. Mm-hmm. Follow Daniel Parada, um, the Sentam Collective. There's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, read El Faro in English. There is a lot of information to sift through and, um, you know, question, question, you know, don't be afraid to question your elders in in, in a sense of like, you know, maybe you don't want to question them to their face, but like, maybe like you want to listen to your elders, see what they're saying about Nayib Bukele and verify if it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say for me, you can challenge your elders. Go ahead. All right. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, It was amazing having you on the podcast and I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Bye.